Athletes garner our attention every turn, it seems. But what if our focus on them went beyond entertainment to actually learning something? What if the lessons from world-class athletes could actually improve our lives? Welcome to the latest episode of the Catalyst Health, Wellness, and Performance Coaching Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Bradford Cooper of the Catalyst Coaching Institute. And today's guest, Dr. Noel Brick, is the co-author, along with Runner's World Scott Douglas, of a brand new book that allows us to do exactly that. It's titled, The Genius of Athletes, What World-Class Competitors Know They Can Change Your Life. I have a feeling you're online right now ordering it. In, in addition to being the author of this intriguing new book, Dr. Brick is a British Psychological Society chartered psychologist, a lecturer in sport and exercise psychology at Ulster University in Ireland, and a researcher on the psychology of endurance performance. We actually originally met face-to-face at the British Psychological Conference when we were both speaking in Belfast, Ireland back in 2018 and got a chance to go out for a run together. We talked about it briefly at the beginning of the podcast. If you're leaning towards pursuing your board certification as a health and wellness coach, by the way, our August training sets you up perfectly for the timeline for that next MBHWC application. It also allows you to get things rolling before the registration price goes up. Our programs have all been filling up early and this one will likely do the same. So check it out if you're interested. Details are at catalystcoachinginstitute.com or always feel free. Drop us a note anytime. Results at catalystcoachinginstitute.com and we'll set up a time to talk you through or to answer all your questions. Now, let's listen in as Dr. Noel Brick shares the genius of athletes on the latest episode of the Catalyst Health, Wellness, and Performance Coaching Podcast. Dr. Noel Brick, it is such a privilege. I am so excited about this book. Congratulations. Thank you, Brad, and, and I really appreciate your invitation to come along. Um, uh, and thank you. That's, that's, um, it's nice to hear some nice things about the book, so thank you. Well, and it's funny because you and I were trading a couple of emails. We've met on, I think, just one occasion, but that occasion was a good one because it was a run. We're both in Ireland for a, a conference, and you had organized a, a run for the group. I always thought they should have like a 5K because it's a group of sports psychologists, for goodness sakes. Why are we not racing? See if our stuff works. But... <laughs> At least we got out for a run together, so that was great. Uh, let, let's jump right in. I love your reference right out of the gate. I think it's the first chapter you referenced the dumb jock and how that's it's not really a thing anymore. You can't really be dumb and be an effective, results-oriented jock. Can you talk us through, maybe maybe it's never been that way, but why is it especially not that way now? Um, well, you're right. Maybe maybe it's never been that way, or, or maybe there's a stereotype that sometimes athletes just, you know, whether it's a simple sport like running that you just mentioned, just engage autopilot and just simply perform to the best of their abilities without any mental process, without any cognitive activity happening. Um, and we know that's very, very much not the case. I mean, you were an outstanding athlete yourself as well as well as researching this. You, you understand both from the, 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 the practice side of things, but also from the research side of things that actually there's a lot going on. There's a lot to think about uh, in endurance activities and, and in sport in general. And similar to you, I mean, my research has been on what athletes focus on, what athletes think about, um, predominantly running, but uh, broadly in the endurance field. Uh, and what has come out from some of the, the the interviews that I've done with athletes, ranging from you know recreational beginner runners right the way through to Olympic athletes, is some of the strategies they use, some of the things they, they think about, how they manage their emotions in you know, really challenging, you know, high pressure situations, how they build their confidence, what they say to themselves, their, their, their inner chatter, their, their self-talk. Some of these strategies are so sophisticated uh, and some of the things that they do to, to deal with some of the situations that arise are, are amazing. I mean, I've been sitting in interviews with Olympic athletes sometimes and I'm just amazed in terms of what they say they think about and, and you know, uh, during those events. So, so, so there's kind of, the, I suppose, the first thing, why the dumb jock uh, stereotype, if it ever existed, certainly do, does not exist. Um, and, and I guess as we go through this this chat, we'll talk a bit more about some of those. But here's another thing that I think is really interesting as well. You know, and this is kind of the, 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 the kind of main goal and I suppose the premise of the book that, that we wrote is that a lot of these strategies apply to everyday life mm. as well. And I think some of, some of the feedback that we've got is that, you know, a very simple kind of quote that I kind of remember is, you know, you don't really know some of these things exist until you learn them or until you hear them. And, and when you learn some of these strategies, you realize for an athlete how useful they can be to help you overcome some challenges in sport. And that applies to everyday life, I think, as well, how we can use some of these same thinking strategies to overcome challenges in our everyday life, too. I, I love that. And that's, I think, the, the subtitle of your book 
just grab me. What world-class competitors know that can change your life, not your athletic results, although it can do that, not your only physical pursuits. Folks, we're talking about everything. I mean, that's what drew me into my PhD stuff was how can we take the mental toughness stuff and make it practical, functional? Great. The athletes, the Navy SEALs, they're doing this stuff, but is it applicable to what we're doing every day? And so, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited about this. So that's, that's the next route I want to go here. How do these things run parallel as far as athletic lessons or things we learn or the athletes have learned at the top level and what we're doing on a, a daily, weekly, monthly basis? Yeah, I mean, I guess there, there's so much that we can learn from sport. One of the kind of, um, a quote that I keep coming back to that, that was kind of originally put out there by one of the, the fathers of, of, well, he was a cognitive psychologist, but really sports psychology in Ireland, Professor Aidan Moore. And he, he used this term to describe sport as a natural laboratory where we mm. could sort of study. I, I love it. I absolutely love it. Uh, and what he meant by that was that, you know, there's so much that happens in sport that, that sort of in a, in a microcosm of a game, even, you know, things that happen in a game, the, the pressure we experience, the challenges, you know, some moments we're up, some moments we're down. These scenarios, these situations play out in, in life as well. And what we can learn from sport is, you know, how do, have, how do athletes handle those situations? How, they, how do they stay calm and in the most pressurized, tense, you know, big games, with millions of people watching? And that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> Yet some athletes thrive in those situations some athletes exceed their usual performance in those situations and you know when you look underneath the hood you realize that to to do that there's a lot of thinking goes on there's a lot of self-talk that goes on there's a lot of strategies that they use in preparation for games what they say to themselves in in the build-up and when i think about how that applies to my life i, I kind of think about situations like you know I'm, I'm i'm a lecturer at university so you know students preparing for an exam it's, it's something that's really really important if, if you're preparing to give a presentation and work there's sometimes a lot of pressure and so those same strategies you know these are all performance contexts these are all performance situations uh, and the emotions we experience are the same you know no matter, no matter whether you're playing a super bowl or, or whether you've got a an exam as a, an undergraduate yeah. student the, the pressure and, and the demands of that situation can be just as as big for both uh, and so the strategies that we use to deal with those situations can, can apply just as well uh too and, and so that's what we try to do in this book i think we try to Coming from the the strategies that athletes use in sport, um, how can we apply those to, to everyday life? Uh, and what are some situations where they might apply? And for me, it was really fun because w- what I got to do, I guess, was dig into some of the research outside of my field, outside of the field of sport, and learn a little bit about how some of these strategies and some of the evidence for these strategies uh, that apply in some of those contexts we, we mentioned there as well. But but that's one that kept coming back to me, Brad, was that, that natural laboratory that Professor Aidan, Aidan that. Moore spoke about. And I guess that's what we're trying to uh, to dig into and explore here a little bit as well. Right, right. Love that. Um, you, you talk about Peter Gallitzer's if-then planning, and, and it, it's clearly an evidence-based approach. It's not just something some motivational speaker came up with, like, hey, let's call it the if-then. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's a thing. It's been studied. It, the evidence is there. Can you walk us through what the strategy is, why it's so effective, and then why you recommend it for any of us to be using? Yeah, so so this was a strategy that uh, Goldwitzer developed in, in the 1990s. And, and I think in the original paper, you know, he, he titled the original paper something like Big Effects from a Simple Strategy or Large Effects from a Simple Strategy or something like that. And so, so, so basically what he, through his research, noticed, um, and this has been, I guess, evidenced in a lot of, of research sense, is that, you know, we, we all set goals, no matter what area of life, we all set goals, we all form intentions, we all have these things that we want to do. The classic example is probably New Year's resolution. But the difference is, you know, and, and probably the common experience is we don't always follow through, right? We, we have these great plans, but we don't really follow through and follow those through into actual behavior. And so Gottwitzer's idea was that, Okay, well, first of all, understanding what the gap is. So the gap between our intentions and our actual behavior. And how do we bridge that gap? What what, what can we do to ensure that we follow through in those intentions? Uh, and so he came up with this, this strategy, uh, which he originally called an implementation intention, but which is more commonly known as, as if then planning. And very simply what it is, is that um, let's say we set a goal. So let's say, for example, I want to run a 5K. Okay, so, so maybe that's my, my big goal. On the way to achieving that goal, I'm probably going to encounter a lot of obstacles. Um, there's a lot of things, you know, life. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
is going to get in my way. Um, I might come home from work and I, I feel tired, you know, and I don't really feel like doing some some running that night. So the IFTEN plan, first of all, what we do is, is we we kind of understand, okay, what are the obstacles? So we think about what the obstacles here. So those are the ifs. What, what are the situations that might get in the way of me uh, following through on my goal? The then is the solution, the the plan. What what will I do in response to that if situation, the, the obstacle that might get in, in my way? Um, so if I come home late in the evening, I might decide, okay, well, instead of sitting there for you know an hour watching TV to, to try to work up the motivation to, to, to get out and go for a run, I might just say, as soon as I get home, I'm going to put my training gear on and get straight out of the door. And you know, even if I go out for two minutes, that's fine. That's okay. But I'll get out the door. That's my then. Uh, I'll start my run, and you know what? I might I might decide to go for a little bit longer once I get out there. So so this is this, this strategy has been applied mostly, probably probably in health related behaviors. So whether that's exercise, whether that you know trying to follow a healthier eating plan, whatever it might be. But the principle is the same: that we identify those obstacles, and and then we have a plan in place to to overcome those obstacles, uh, if you like. What I actually really like, you know, I suppose I've I kind of spoken about. The, then the the response to a situation in terms of a behavior, so getting out the door to to exercise. But actually, this applies to our thinking as well. So again, if you know, if I'm in a in a pressure situation, be it whether I'm an athlete or whether it's in in a in work or a student or whatever it might be, you know, and I come up a situ- against a situation where I feel you know maybe I potentially feel panicked or you know somebody might throw me a question in a podcast that I'm prepared. <laughs> Never happens here. Okay. <laughs> so so what's my then? How will I handle that situation? You know, and it might be okay. Well, you know what? What will I say to myself? How will I stay calm? These are these are not behaviors. These are my thoughts. These are my the things I will do to respond in that situation. Uh, and again, that that can be extremely effective and. And, you know, when I'm kind of working with some athletes, you know, and, and I'm kind of presenting this strategy because I think it's so incredibly useful. If you think about it this way, if, if you're going into a situation where you might have some doubts or some worries and those worries could be, you know, what if this happens? What if that happens? Well, if you have a plan in terms of how you're going to respond in that situation, how you're going to deal with it, then it's not so much of a worry anymore, is it? Because, you know, if it happens, well, I know what I'm going to do or I know how at least how I'll try to handle that situation. Um, it almost balances us, so, expectations. Uh, it, it, instead of us saying, oh, I'm going to do this 5K, it's going to be easy, it's going to be great, my friends do it. it it's, it's balancing out, you know what, this is probably going to happen, this might happen, this could happen. And so then we're not surprised when it comes about and you got the plan. Exactly. And, and actually, that's a really way, good way of looking at it because you're right. It becomes a little bit more realistic. You, you consider the ifs, you consider the obstacles. Uh, and even, you know, you, we might not get it right all the time. We might come across an obstacle. And it might get in our way for it. Absolutely. But that's a huge learning opportunity. And OK, if I come across that again, what would I do differently? How, how would I handle that situation uh, a little bit differently? And again, this is where our if then plans can evolve and can grow and can mature as we go through the process of running a 5K or whatever it might be. Really like that. And, and for the coaches that are listening, teachers, managers, parents, think of how simple that is. I mean, you could use this with a, a nine-year-old child. You could use it with a, a new employee. It, it, yeah, it's great. Now, yeah. is there any danger of too many obstacles? As I go through that, I start, oh, well, you know, I'm going to be tired. I'm going to uh, be hungry. I'm going to hurt my foot. I'm going to, you know, whatever. And then you look at it and you go, well, I'm not running off 5K. This thing, <laughs> this is insane. Is there, cons- do, you, do you say, you know, look for the most obvious five or do you cap that or is that completely individualized? I think one thing actually that comes out from this research is that once you have, this is like, you know, answering your question from a slight angle, but one thing that comes out from that research is that, so once we formulate our if-then plan, one danger, if you like, is that we then focus too much on the if. We're looking for the obstacles. We're we're overthinking the obstacle. And I think pretty good advice is that, okay, once you've got a plan, fine, you know, the plan is there. If it happens, again, it's an if, you know, it's not a when, it's not necessarily going to happen. But if it happens, then you've got a, a strategy to, to deal with it. But you're right, you know, sometimes I guess you can kind of overthink those, those situations and overthink those potential ifs then as well. One approach I really like, you know, and this maybe balances it as well from another angle. We tell uh, angle. We tell a little bit of a story in the book about Michael Phelps and, and how he used this for for his mental preparation for races. And he wouldn't just focus on the 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 negatives, if you like, you know, the, the what could happen, what the things he didn't want to happen. He would also focus on the good things that could happen. Mm. Um, and again, 
you know, sometimes good things can happen, but we don't always respond effectively. Sure. Focusing on the good things, you know, if I get into the lead in the race, that's a good thing. But how will I respond in that right. situation? So, so again, we can focus on the good things as well, and 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 that can be really useful to ma- maintaining our momentum um, as as we go through any situation. I think one last thing to mention here, which I think is really important as well. I know you did a really excellent podcast um, a while back with Wendy Wood on, oh, on habit formation. Great. It was awesome. I really enjoyed that one. And one thing about if then plans is that so. What happens cognitively, mentally, when we prepare an if-then plan is that our response to that situation becomes a little bit more automatic. We don't have to think on our feet as much. And so it's not quite a habit. You know, it's, it's right. not a habit as, as, as automatic as a habit would be, but our response becomes more automated. Mm-hmm. And so we don't have to, you know, stop and think as much in the situation. We, we've got a plan uh, that comes together, or sorry, comes to mind a little bit more readily uh, when we encounter that situation. And you're not using as much mental fuel, if you will, because you, exactly. you save that for something else. Yeah, exactly. Right. You know, I'm not having to use, well, I'm, I mean, for one thing, I'm not having to maybe use a strategy uh, that's not going to be effective, that it, that might oh. need more self-control. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's the mental fuel, the, the willpower that you talk about. So you've mentioned emotion a couple of times. I, I want to walk down this path a little bit because we see mm. such a broad range of responses. What emotion, what, what role do emotions play in achieving our goals or enhancing our lives? And sometimes I get the sense that a lot of research researchers say we need to suppress them or the coaches say we need to suppress them. I don't know. Can they be the driver? Can they be the, you don't want to live on emotions. You you can't sustain that for an entire soccer game or basketball game or something, but do emotions have a positive role as a, maybe a spark or a Mm -hmm. catalyst or a shift or something, or in general, are emotions a negative thing? I think one point that I think is so important, well, there's, there's many points, but in terms of this, a first point that I think is really important is, you know, we often kind of think about certain emotions as being either good or bad, you know. So so we might think of being anxious or, or concerned about something as, as inherently bad uh, and something that we want to avoid and something actually we, by avoiding, we try to suppress. And, you know, if, if somebody asked me a question about this when I was a kid watching sport, what I would observe with athletes, I would have thought, oh, gosh, they must be suppressing their anxiety, the, their nerves, their worries. They, they have to just just push them down. But, but actually, it's, it's much more sophisticated than that. And what athletes are doing is, isn't really about um, suppression. So I think a first point that's really good to know here is, is that emotions are not really good or bad. Every emotion has a purpose and, and emotions have, have a function, if you like. And even some that we think of as maybe bad so if we take the example I mentioned, you know, um, anxiety or it's near neighbor concern, which is a healthier form Um being concerned about something. So if an athlete, for example, is concerned before a race or, or if, if somebody's concerned before a presentation or an interview or whatever, that can be a useful thing. You know, that can that can signal certain information to us about, you know, am I prepared for this situation? Have I have I done the things I need to do in this situation to 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 be the best, to perform the best that I can? So that feeling of concern or that feeling of anxiety can actually be an important cue, an important driver. Uh, and if we listen to it and if we tune into it and if we use that as a source of information, then actually what it's telling us is, you know, maybe I need to do a little bit more preparation here. I'm not quite ready for certain situations that might happen in, in a race or in a presentation or an exam or whatever it might be. And so, so you know, this actually sometimes can tie quite neatly back to the, the if-then plan, you know, uh, that we spoke about previously. Anger is another one. And we, we spoke, speak a little bit about this too, that Again, we often think about anger as being bad, but but actually anger can be expressed the right way, not suppressed, um, can actually be very, very healthy and very, very useful. Um, so, you know, when we talk about things like assertiveness, that that's a healthier form of uh, anger and expressed in the right way can can help us to deal with situations in our life, too. So so that's probably a first point that that. A lot of these emotions that, that we speak about are not necessarily good or bad. Uh, they can be pleasant or unpleasant, uh, but in the right context and expressed the right way, they, they can also be very helpful as well. So, so, so that's the first thing. In terms of suppression, there's actually a really neat study, you know, that, that we, we sort of speak a little bit about. Uh, and I hope it's okay. If you've read the book, Brad, so I hope it's okay to talk about. Oh, this, absolutely, this study absolutely. Because folks, disgust. they're, they're going to need to pull this thing up. <laughs> this is this has got all the stuff we're talking about and even more. Yeah, so so this was a really interesting um, study that looked at the impact of emotion suppression on uh, sporting performance. And the emotion that the, the researchers tried to dig up in this study was disgust. 
So what they do, what they did was they had participants uh, do a series of 10K cycling time trials, um, and they asked them to do each one as quickly as possible. The first one was just a baseline. So, so basically, you know, no special conditions or anything like that. It was just get on the bike, cycle as, as far as you can uh, or as fast as you can for a 10K. Well, the second and third, what they did was they showed the participants a video before the second and third time trials. And this was a, a video which was designed to elicit disgust. Um, so what they had was somebody um, throw up in the video uh, and then eat eat it back down again, which, I mean, I haven't seen this video, but it, it sounds absolutely oh. horrendous. Now, you've you've expressed your, your feelings right there. Yeah. And in, in, in one condition, participants were allowed to express how they felt in whatever way they wanted. But in the other condition, they had to suppress that emotion mm. so they couldn't, you know, uh, make any verbalizations. They couldn't even express it, you know, in terms of their body language or facial expression or anything like that. They, they just had to suppress it right down. And what they found was that the suppression trial was performed by 2.3% slower uh, than the non-suppression trial, uh, which is about 25 seconds for, for these participants. And what that shows, just even just a very simple emotions suppression task like that uh, can impact sporting performance. And, and the reason they suggested is because when we try to suppress our emotions, use the kind of the term earlier, it takes a lot of fuel. It takes a lot of mental fuel to, to suppress those. It takes a lot of self-control or willpower. And that can hurt our performance. Self-control and willpower are limited resources. And just like suppressing an emotion takes uh, self-control. So too does performing a 10K as fast as you can. You've, you've got a controller just to stop or to quit. And so when you deplete that resource by suppressing an, suppressing an emotion, for example, it can also hurt performance mm. in, in, in other areas. So I think the key thing here is, is that learning how to express our emotions or learning how to manage our emotions in a healthier way is much more effective than trying to suppress them, trying to avoid them or trying to, to hide them in some way, um, which can be I suppose in a sporting context can be unhelpful, but actually in a, in a real life context as well. Ultimately, what tends to happen when we, we try to suppress emotions this way is that ultimately we experience them more intensely. And, and in doing so, we tend to vent them more maybe aggressively or violently or, or whatever it might be. So, so expressing them or having some way of expressing them is a much healthier way of dealing with those emotions. Well, and coming back to your if then. So if I'm in whatever, let's say a triathlon and I've gone through the if-then of a flat tire, then my, then my emotional response is significantly different than if I haven't. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't even know how to use this pump, and I, I'm not sure I have the right CO2 cartridge, et cetera, et cetera. Now I'm, same situation, same flat tire, same race, same temperature, same everything else. One, I've gone through the if-then, so I simply get off my bike, change the tire, get back on and move. There's no need for the emotion. I'm not suppressing it. It's just not a need for it. The other one, I haven't done that exercise. And now I'm all, you know, all up in arms and going, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? So that exercise, your first one can help your second one you're talking about. Absolutely, because you, you've got a plan in place to, to deal with that scenario. I, I mentioned Michael Phelps earlier and, and, you know, the great story, which, again, you can find out a little bit on, on this, in, both in the book and, and uh, he's spoken about it openly. So during a 200 meter butterfly final in the, uh, I think it was 2008 Olympics, um, similar to, to that puncture tire scenario, his goggles started to leak during the race. And, and a strategy that Bob Bowman, his coach, and, and Michael Phelps himself had developed was that, if, you know, if something like that, so again, if situation, an obstacle, if something like that were to happen in a race, what would they do? Um, and he had a whole load of different scenarios that could happen, his suit ripping, et cetera, et cetera. But in this particular example, his, his goggles started to leak. And I think, you know, if most of us, if our goggles started to leak and suddenly, you know, I mean, you're swimming blind, you, you don't know where the lane markers are, you don't know when you have to turn uh, it uh, You know, I asked, I asked a group of athletes this recently when I was giving this example, and I sort of asked, you know, what would you do? And, and people are like, you know, this is an Olympic final, by the way. Well, I'd probably stop or I'd panic <laughs> or I'd just, you know, I'd, I'd just give up in the race or whatever it was. But, but his then, his, his solution, if anything happened, was to start counting his strokes. So, okay, what's he doing there? So he's staying focused. He knew it would take about 21 strokes to swim a length. So he stayed calm. He stayed focused. He focused on the process of swimming as fast as he can. And as he swam the final length, he counted 19, 20. And on 21, he reached out and touched the wall. He won the race in a world record time. 
despite the fact that he couldn't see where he was going in, in that final length. So, so again, that just shows how having a plan yeah. can really help your emotional response in that situation. And, and in that context, having a plan helps you focus on the things you would want to focus on to swim as, as, as fast as you can or cycle as fast as you can in, in your example as well. Let's jump into self-talk. Um, one of our published studies looked at self-talk in runners and I, I, I wasn't surprised by the results. I was surprised by the magnitude of the results. We saw far bigger impact on that than I, or I think Mark or Martin did as well. Um, how does you, you, you talk about self-talk in, in your book. How does that play a role in our non-athletic lives? And what are some key <laughs> tips to, to applying that to what we're doing on a daily basis? Yeah, and and by the way, I love that study that you published on on self talk with runners. It was, it was a really nice study, and one th- one thing I loved on that actually as well was um, how some runners, even though they perceive their efforts to be extremely high before the intervention, was actually even higher afterwards. So <laughs> they had no I, idea. I just, yeah, they yeah, were like, I, "Oh my gosh, how did that happen?" <laughs> Um, I, I thought that was incredible. And it shows how just how effective and how powerful what we say to ourselves um, can be. So, so yeah, so, so when we talk about, well, when we talk about self-talk, really it's that kind of inner chatter, that inner dialogue that we all have, or monologue sometimes that we all have with ourselves. And actually, when it, when it comes to sporting context, and especially, you know, our field in endurance, the evidence base for, for self-talk is probably one of the strongest of, mm. of all the techniques. Um, there's some really good evidence about how uh, it can help to, to improve performance, to cope with, you know, higher perceptions of, of effort that, you know, this task is really hard and, and I want to stop right now, et cetera. And it was really, probably the last point, it was really fun for me to dig into some of the research on this outside of the sporting context as well. And I'll talk to one or two studies, which I absolutely adore. They're brilliant studies. But broadly, what, to talk about our self-talk. So, you know, sometimes our self-talk well, I guess sometimes it can be very negative and, and almost defeatist in some situations. So, so it can be very simple things that we sometimes say to ourselves, like, you know, I can't do this or I give up. And, and that's not just in sport. You know, it can Completely. be trying to do math or, or it can't, you know, in a presentation or an interview or whatever it might be. And, and I guess the important thing, one of the important things to, to, to indicate there is that what we say to ourselves can have such a powerful influence on A, how we feel. And then be how we subsequently act. So, so for an endurance athlete, you know, if I'm saying to myself, "I can't do this. This is, this is too hard. I give up." Well, guess what? I'm I'm probably going to give up, or I'm probably going to slow down. You know, much sooner than than I otherwise would. And what the research has shown is that when we say very simple things to ourselves, like, you know, "I can do this. Keep going. You you can do this." That those simple statements, repeating those simple statements to ourselves, kind of such a powerful influence on our performance. And you've shown it in in your research with with eight hundred meter runs and some of the, some other research. You know, going from time to exhaustion trials where where people literally go on a bike at about eighty percent of their max and try to maintain that for as as long as they possibly can. There's, there's a cl- classic study from twenty fourteen, but it's twenty fourteen, but it's a classic study on, in this area already. I feel. And what they showed was that a two week self talk intervention. Very simple statements, type statements that I just mentioned, improved cycling to exhaustion time by 18% um, in a group in a group of athletes. 80 cycling at 80% of our max. Most of us, uh, unless you're an exceptional athlete like like you, Brad, most of us like me would maintain about 10 minutes probably at an intensity like that. It's, it's exceptionally difficult. But these participants who were just repeating simple self-talk statements, they learned like, I can do this, keep going, push through this, lasted 18% longer, wow. which, which is incredible. Oh, it's it absolutely is. It's huge. Um, so it shows how, how powerful it can be. And, and there's some re- recent studies actually which, which have built on this. And, and there was a study by some of the same researchers recently, and I love this one. What they did was kind of similar statements. So it was like, you know, I can do this. Um, I can push through this. They had participants do cycling time trials, either speaking to themselves in the first person. So again, I can do this. I can push through this. Or in the third person. So you can do this. You can push through this. And what they found was actually the participants in the third person condition uh, perform faster than they did in the first person, even though they found the statements equally motivating in the both uh, conditions. Right. Yeah. Uh, and what they suggested was uh, when we speak to ourselves in the, in the second person, sorry, in the third person, like you can do this, mm-hmm. or I might say to myself, come on, Noel, you know, you can you do this. this. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
the what we do is, is we create this this self distancing effect, this psychological sense of distance between ourselves and what we're experiencing. Um, so we almost might speak to ourselves like an encouraging friend would do, or, or a coach might do, or a, a supportive work colleague might do. And this psychological distance, and, and the opposite is a self immersed perspective, which is the I I I I'm in this world of pain right now doing this task, and it's really challenging, and I'm not sure I can do this. So so what was fun to, for me was to actually dig into some of the research on this outside of of the sporting context. And what they found is actually some of the effects are, are just the same. That when people speak to themselves and create in, in the third person and create, create this self-distance perspective, that pressurized situations seem less anxiety provoking performance of, uh, rated objectively. So this might be the performance of somebody giving a presentation, for example. They're rated as more coherent, more fluent by somebody when they're speaking to themselves in the third person rather than in the, the first person condition. And the one I absolutely loved, an example from one of these studies that I absolutely love, Brad, was an account of somebody who's going on their first date and they were really anxious <laughs> about their first date. And they gave an account of the, the narrative. Um, and it was things like, Oh, you can do this. You can do this. Why, why, why did I say that? Come on, man, pull it together. Get through this. You know, and so it was this again, it showed how when we speak to ourselves in the first person, this, oh, why did I say that? That can be really anxiety provoking. But when we take a step back, that self-distancing, you know, you can do this, you, you, you can get it back together, whatever it might be, can be really helpful. So, so, so those are some areas from self-talk that I love and, and, the real fun that I think was really finding out how that can help in everyday life as well. I've been practicing my my third person self talk a lot since reading this research. <laughs> I love it. The, so, well, two things came to mind. One, I was trying to learn to tie a bow tie a couple of years ago, and um, I could not get it. And I'm just like, "You're an idiot! You can never eye hand coordination." Just, and then I'm like, "Dude, you've got four college degrees." I, th- I think you can learn to tie a bow tie. And the very next time I got it, it was just that like recentering and not just flying off the handle and me, oh, you're such an idiot, whatever, but putting in perspective. And that, that begs my other question. I wonder, does self-listening precede self-talk? Is it that recognition of, well, that's, you're not making sense, Brad. Of course you can learn to tie a bow tie. Let, take a step back. Have you seen anything like that about the self-listen? I know I don't remember seeing any reference to self-listening, but would self-listening naturally need to precede self-talk? I think that, that's an absolutely great point. Um, I think it's what's important. I think in, in terms of a first step is becoming aware of our self-talk and in, in any self-talk intervention. That's really the first thing, and, and the way we might do that is. You know, really as simple as sometimes keeping a diary. Um, what do I say to myself in certain certain situations? And then the next part is how does that make me feel? So if if I'm in a, a performance context, be it sport or or in another area of life, you know, what what story do I tell myself? What what do I tell myself in that situation? And if my if the statements I notice are things like, you know, I suck at this, I'm, I'm terrible, I can't do this. Nice. And then becoming more aware of actually how that makes me feel. I think the key point in this is, uh, and this is coming from kind of a cognitive behavioral perspective, is that often we think that it's a situation that makes us feel a certain way. So um, I'm terrible at exams. I, I, I hate whatever it might be. I always perform poorly in whatever the context is. But when we become aware of our thoughts and what we say to ourselves, the realization there very often is that it's not the situation that makes me feel this way. It's what I say to myself that makes me feel this way. And that's where I think the listening comes in. The the awareness uh, kind of comes in. And once we develop that awareness, then it becomes, you know, we, we become less focused on the situation, like avoiding a presentation or whatever it might be, and more about the story, the things we say to ourselves in that situation. And, and and I guess the last bit then is kind of changing our self-talk so that we're using statements that are more encouraging, more supportive, maybe even sometimes more self-calming in that situation to help us manage our emotional response. Self-listening is, is, is a great term to use because that's where we develop the awareness, I think, for, for a strategy then like a self-talk intervention to become more beneficial, more helpful. So let's jump into this idea of momentum. Chapter eight, I, I think that might, from my perspective, might be your most important chapter in the whole book. We all tend to be pretty good about getting started. You mentioned New Year's resolutions. Hey, I'm going to do this. Here we go. Let's do this thing. But staying the course, that 
can often be a different story. What are some of the keys to the maintaining momentum that might help our listeners as they're doing this? So, so thank you for, for what you said about that chapter. This is, um, I, I think you're right. I think it's one that's really important because, you know, when we were writing this book, there was a whole different draft of some of these chapters that are still sitting on my computer. They, they never made the light of day. And one of them was about setting goals. And after writing this chapter, we kind of sat back and we kind of thought, and the realization was, hang on, you know, people know how to set goals. You know, every, every, but we all have goals in, in, in our life. The real problems, the real issues that we face are, are following through on those goals. And even getting started, you know, we, we're pretty good at that. But you're right, it's maintaining momentum and seeing through to completion. That's that's the little bit. So, so you know, if anybody wants the bonus chapter that's sitting on my computer, <laughs> it's, it's, it's there. But, 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 but actually, I think the key bit, you're right, is, is, is keeping going. One thing right from the get-go in this chapter um, that I think is worth mentioning is we speak a little bit about some of the, 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 the habits, if you like, the daily routines that some top athletes have. And, and I think if I was to say a, a point number one on these is that, you know, the very simple strategies like getting enough sleep, getting enough rest, um, eating healthily, all those kind of things, which, by the way, you know, when we look at New Year's resolutions that you mentioned there, those are top of the tree, right? Mm-hmm. Those are the, the ones that everybody, most of us tend to set. Starting there is a good point because, I mean, you know, we spoke about emotional regulation, eating healthily, getting enough rest and sleep is, is a number one thing, I think, to, to, to being able to regulate our emotions. So how do we follow through on those things? Well, I think some of the strategies we spoke about are really helpful, um, like if then planning. So again, how do we overcome obstacles? So in terms of, of goal setting, it can be things like, you know, getting derailed, you know, other distractions getting in our way. So again, how will I deal with those other things that just happen in life that might might knock me off uh, track? Procrastinating, you know, putting off getting started even again. How, how will I get started? And again, if then planning, going back to Goldwitzer's work, that was the whole purpose. That was the whole point of following through in our intentions and, and getting started on our intentions um, by developing these, these if then plans. So, so that's kind of a, a big one there. One other thing, and I'll go back slightly on what I said about everybody knows how to set goals. Um, there's some fantastic research, very recent research on a type of goal called an open goal. It's, you know, most of us kind of have heard about these specific, these smart goals that we set a specific target. Like, again, I want to run a 5k. That's, that's a specific distance that I want to run. It's measurable. All those things. Open goals is a relatively new area of research. And what an open goal suggests is that rather than setting something very specific, I might set myself um, a goal that goes something along the lines of, I'm going to get active and see how much I can do. Okay, so so it doesn't really have a, a ceiling, a specific target, if you like. It's it's get active and, and see how well I can do or see how far I can go. And, and what the research has suggested in a physical activity context, certainly, is that setting open goals for people who are beginning a new behavior tend to, when they engage in the activity, they tend to feel less pressurized uh, and they also tend to to find the activity more pleasant, more enjoyable than when they set a specific goal. And the reason for that is, and this feeds into a lot of other things, I believe as well, like like our self-belief, our self-efficacy, is that if we set an open goal, let's let's take, um, you know, physical activity targets are 10,000 steps a day. Okay, let's take that. That's a specific measurable goal, 10,000 steps. If I get active and I'm just beginning on my my journey to get more physically active and let's say on day, you know, the end of week one, I've averaged about 6,000 steps per day. Well, if I have that specific goal that I'm trying to reach, I might look at that 6,000 steps and say, gosh, I failed. That was dreadful. I I only got to 6,000 steps. My goal was 10. I'll never get there. I'll never do this because I tried really hard. Whereas if I set an open goal and I suggest to myself, okay, I'm just going to get more active. I'm going to go walking every day and see how well I can do. I can look at those same 6,000 steps and think, wow, I went from zero to 6,000 this week. That's outstanding actually that's pretty incredible and I, I i quite enjoyed it let's keep this going let's let's develop on that momentum so so that's kind of one thing in terms of goal setting research that i think is fascinating how we can use different types of goals non-specific goals like open goals to give us a very different perspective on, on what we're doing and and you know the the activity in that case that that we're doing wait let me jump in on that one because sure, you really yeah, got yeah. me thinking i know the folks listening are going wait now what what is he talking who, who are there a couple of researchers top ahead that top of mind that you could throw out to us that have gotten into some of this open goal stuff 
Absolutely. So, so probably the main guy who's leading this this area of research is Christian Swan. He's um, oh yeah, he's actually a, an Irish researcher, but yeah, he's based in a university in Australia. And for about the past four years, he's he's been one of the main guys who's been okay. uh, developing the research in in this area. Another group of researchers based in the University of Lincoln in in England are uh, Patricia Jackman. Um, and Rebecca Hawkins, and they've done some nice research recently as well on uh, physical activity. Okay. Uh, and again, differences for beginners between open goals and specific goals. And, and the broad finding is, is really what I've sort of mentioned there, that for beginners, which again, if we're setting a goal and if we're trying to do, again, anything, be it physical activity, go through those top five you know, New Year's resolutions, get more sleep, yeah. eat healthily, all those kind of things. I guess I'm, I'm probably expanding beyond where the research is currently at by suggesting that open goals can be effective in other areas. But certainly it seems very promising that open goals can be effective to change our perceptions of our achievements and, and, and actually the, the task that we're trying to begin, I guess, or, or the goal that we're trying to achieve. So the skeptic in me, or maybe some, I'm speaking for some folks listening, are saying, does that just let you off the hook? Is the idea better than yesterday? We use that phrase a lot, this idea of better than yesterday. Is the idea of that goal not, well, I can just do whatever I feel like. Is it, I, I'm going to improve? I may not walk 10,000, but I'm going to increase from my 1,500. Or is it just, I'm just going to kind of see what happens? And like, is there any, because better than yesterday still, or or improvement still has some, some sort of feedback loop, whereas, I I don't know. So is there feedback loop still, does it still exist or do we take that completely off the table with this strategy? No, absolutely not. And and a slight subtlety in terms of the finding this, and and I think what you say is absolutely right, especially, you know, for somebody who's who's really physically active, what they found in one of their studies was that for people who are regularly active, um, so you might say experienced in, in terms of physical activity, those people preferred the specific goal. Those oh. people preferred the measurable. Okay. So, so again, if if we kind of maybe sort of put it this way, if somebody's really physically active, um, if we're just using physical activity as the context, so I've got the tools, I've got the skills, I know what to do. The, the suggestion is those people like the targets. They Got like the it. specific targets. Okay. It's like, okay, yeah, you know, I'm going to test myself and see if I can get to that 20 minute 5K or, right. or whatever it might be. For somebody who's beginning the behavior, who doesn't necessarily have the tools, you know, physical activity is a very complex beha- behavior. It involves a lot of things. It's, you know, it's knowing what to do. It's or reorganizing our lives sometimes to, to fit in physical activity. There's a lot of learning right. there. And so to facilitate that learning, the open goal can sometimes feel a little bit less pressured and actually the activity more enjoyable. And to kind of close a bit of a loop there, um, one of the key things, and this is coming out from work predominantly led by a researcher called um, Patty Ekakakis, um, who's in um, Iowa State University. In terms of physical activity, he suggests that the most important thing for long-term adherence and maintenance of physical activity is that it's enjoyable during, that that it, it yeah. leads to positive effect, um, uh, as he describes it during. And so any strategy that can help make the activity feel more pleasant, in this case, like an open goal, can uh, help to to increase long-term adherence. And for somebody beginning and trying to maintain that momentum, that that can be really important. That makes sense. All right. Let's run down a little bit of a rabbit trail here. It it seems like those... I don't know. We just look around and maybe it's just because it's in the press and we're inundated with so much in terms of headlines, but it seems like so many people that are incredibly successful on the playing field are leading disastrous lives off the playing field. Well, what's going on with that? It seems like, as you've said in your book, the concepts that help in setting A apply to setting B, and yet we're not necessarily seeing that at the top levels of athletic performance. Any any thoughts on that? Well, I think that's that's a really. I mean, there's so many so many ways we, we can go with this question. I think it's a really really good question. Um, if I was to think about that from a number of different perspectives, I think I suppose something that comes to mind recently, or, or something that comes to mind with recent examples, are you know, some mental health, for example, w- with athletes, and there's a lot of great conversations from athletes mm-hmm. um, about you know mental health struggles and things like that. And I guess one thing that I would suggest in, in answer to that, so, so what the research would suggest is that the incidence of mental health uh, issues among athletes are pretty similar actually to the general population. There's a whole, whole lot of nuances, nuances in that, but, but generally it's pretty similar to, to the uh, general population. 
but for athletes, I guess there's so many other pre- uh, pressures. I mean, for, for most of us, you know, going out, getting exercise, being physically active is, is a hobby and actually a, a, an emotion regulation strategy that can be really helpful for our mental health. But for athletes, you know, things like injury, not performing as well as they might do, being deselected, and even actually the environment sometimes that athletes are operating in, I mean, it can be pretty relentless um, and, and unrelenting sometimes. And, and that can be really damaging and, and really lead to a lot of poor mental health outcomes and, and lower well-being amongst athletes. So, so I guess, you know, some of the reasons there are very specific to, to a sporting environment. And so, you know, when we do talk a little bit about some things and especially some, some really, I think, really important, really interesting research from uh, Mustafa Sarkar, David Fletcher on sporting environments and how they can impact on outcomes like burnout, low mental health, etc. Um, and broadly how resilience is, is important and, and the sporting environment and its importance for that. So so that's kind of one thing I think and that's I'm I understand I'm going down a little bit of a rabbit hole there, but I think that's one thing that's we love rabbit trails here. Keep going. Yeah, no, <laughs> it's really important. The other one that comes to mind when when I speak about that, and this this is very much relevant to to um, a story that we tell about a former U.S. Uh, miler, Steve Holman, in the book. I guess one other real challenge area for, for athletes is transition out of sport. Uh, and that can happen for a lot of different reasons. I mean, it can happen suddenly in, term, you know, in terms of injury, the deselection, uh, or just the natural end of a career. And, and, you know, this idea of, well, you know, I've been an athlete all my life, huge part of my whole identity as a person is is as an athlete what do i do now what do i do next where do i go next and the story that we tell a little bit is is that of steve holman and and he speaks about what he described as his wilderness years um post his athletic career where for many years after his retirement in the early 2000s what what do i do now you know i've been an athlete all my life and and he speaks about going for some job interviews that that he didn't get it's like wow you know i was this i was an olympic athlete and and now i can't get you know some of the jobs that he was going for and it took a little while but what he realized and and the sort of you know we spoke earlier about awareness of our self-talk but this is awareness in a different context of awareness of what was he good at as an athlete and and this is maybe you know, kind of a, a truer answer to, to, to the question that you asked, you know, that we sometimes see, okay, we're suggesting here that a lot of these strategies are helpful in a, in a sporting context for athletes. And where do they apply in, in everyday life? And part of the awareness there for an athlete can be, okay, well, actually, what, what did I learn through sport? What, what was I good at in sport that I can apply to other situations in my life? And for athletes, these can be things like, well, you know, I was a pretty good leader. I've, I've got leadership skills. I was pretty organized in my life. You know, are there areas of work where I can, where, where those skills, you know, I'm, I'm self-motivated, I'm really driven, I can handle pressurized situations, all these, these sort of skills. The reflection there can be, yeah. Well, okay. How do they apply to to everyday life? And Steve Holman talks a little bit about that learning process of you know what was I good at as an athlete? And one thing he realized was actually you know I, I really love to learn new things. And and he decided to go back to college and study business. And he's now senior executive at at a, a financial services mm-hmm. firm. So so he kind of and he, he kind of worked his way through. I guess they the. the Climbed his way up the ladder in, in terms of his business um, career post sport. So, so I think that's one really important reflection: is is what am I good at as an athlete, and how can that apply to other areas of life? For for that one scenario, in terms of transitioning out of sport. And I'm not going to get into the strengths profile that you talk about in your appendix, but for folks that are facing that, like that example, that would be a great tool to go back to. Or if you have a client, I, I think you may want to pull that up because that's a way to kind of pull together some of the things in terms of what strengths do you bring to the to the table. All right, last one, my friend, of all the keys you cover in the book and in your research, you don't have to stay to the book here, what's the greatest opportunity that most of us are missing out on right now that you want to leave us with as we kind of close the window on this thing? Well, thank you for the opportunity to, to talk about my research as well. Um, I'll, I'll keep it short because I could go on a while. Uh, <laughs> if, if, if I could summar, summarize it in one statement, in one one phrase even that I've learned from the athletes I've interviewed and also that I've learned through writing this book, the, the phrase that I would use is psychological flexibility or mental mm. flexibility. And And what I've learned from researching athletes from from researching this book from writing about the, the the examples that we have in there is that you know very often we're 
we sometimes think we've only got one tool in a certain situation. We've only one way of dealing with a certain situation that may not always be helpful. I recently read an example where, um, and the example they gave to, to kind of illustrate this idea of flexibility is, is uh, imagine you're trying to get a drink out of a, out of a vending machine and, and it, you know, you, you put in your money, you press the button and it doesn't work. And, you know, what do we do? We keep pressing the button. We keep pressing the button. We just, we just think we've got this one tool that we can use. To move away from that analogy, the idea of flexibility is that there's lots of different tools that we can use in in, in the same situation. Uh, And that might be different tools that we can use to manage our emotions, the different things that we can say to ourselves that we spoke about. And again, going right back to that if-then planning, planning different ways that we can respond to challenges, to, to obstacles that we might experience. So to summarize it, I think that idea of psychological flexibility, and we try to write this book in this way that there's all these different tools you mentioned the strengths profiling uh, tool there as well. And part of that process is becoming aware of the situations that we might find challenging and then using the menu of tools to find out, okay, what would suit me in this situation? What can I use in this situation that might help me manage my emotions in that situation or deal with that situation in a different way that to a way that may not have been working previously? So psychological flexibility, that's, that's the thought I'd like to leave, that we've different tools uh, and learning how to use those different tools in a situation can be something really useful to do. I love it. My friend, this was so good. I, I really appreciate it. I've got, you can see I've got scribbles all over my notes. <laughs> I've already read your book. I mean, we, there's a lot in here. So thanks for taking the time. We really, really appreciate it. What's the best way for people to keep up with what you're doing? Uh, and thank you for, for having me on, Brad. I really appreciate it. Um, probably the best way to, to, to keep in touch is on Twitter. Um, so it's at Noel Bricky, uh, N-O-E-L-B-R-I-C-K-I-E. Um, and you'll also find on Twitter, if for anyone who's on Twitter, um, a link to my website on there as well, which is noelbrick.com. So, so those are probably the easiest ways to, to keep up. Perfect. Well, keep up the great work. This is great stuff. And like I said, we, Alex Hutchinson is one of my favorite guests we've ever had. And when he wrote the top of your book here, I was like, okay, we got to talk to Dr. Brick because he's got something going on right here. Thank you, Brad. I told you you're going to love that one. Again, the book is titled The Genius of Athletes, What World-Class Competitors Know That Can Change Your Life. Thanks for tuning in to the number one podcast for health and wellness coaching. It is incredible to think this is our 174th episode, and we have you to thank for. Thanks for sharing it with others. Thanks for all your kind comments and notes. As long as it keeps growing, we'll keep it going. Next week's guest is Peg Tittle, and we're going to dig into an absolutely critical topic in the world of health, wellness, and performance, that of logical fallacies. You'll learn not only how to avoid them in your own life, but also how to pick them up when others, even so-called experts, are falling short in this area. Now it's time to be a catalyst on this journey of life, the chance to make a positive difference in the world while simultaneously improving our own lives, which is the essence of being a catalyst. This is Dr. Bradford Cooper of the Catalyst Coaching Institute. Make it a great rest of your week, and I'll speak with you soon on the next episode of the Catalyst Health, Wellness, and Performance Coaching Podcast, or maybe over on the YouTube Coaching Channel.